gentlemen. Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And sending our best wishes, as always, to Jeff Maldron, who we hope is back hosting this studcast very soon. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history, as told by the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time, and he is here with us, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, my boy, Ron? Oh man, it's uh, good to good to hear from you guys. It seems like it's been a long time, more than a week between this one for some reason. I know you're just getting back over vacation out in South Dakota and seeing some beautiful sights and Lou out there in San Francisco. Uh, I guess weather's probably good out there. And yeah, we're we're rolling again, man. And uh, and you mentioned that hundred years of rich history. Well. You know we're gonna we're gonna start again with old dirty Dutch Mantel, the uh, original one, again in today's show, and we're gonna get rolling on that. I'm just gonna get right into it, Dave. All right, because we got a lot of stuff to do today, and uh, I think this is gonna be a very interesting show for fans. Sounds uh, good, Ryan. Okay, I want to start this one off and uh, talk a little bit about the great comments and the questions I got about that story I told in the last podcast uh, where Dutch, uh, I guess a polite way of putting it, just knocked out somebody's eye. (laughs) There is a polite way of putting that. But anyway, I had so many questions and so many comments that uh, I want to kind of go back there today. People just seem to really enjoy this character, and and, uh, I want to give him his due. I'm going to give Dutch his due today. You know, I believe... uh, he really is a big figure in the history of the sport of wrestling. So uh, I told that story the, last week, and I, and I just feel compelled to to finish it properly, to cover Dutch properly here. I'm going to feature him today in, in both the Today's Training segment and also in the Learning Tree at the end of the show. So we're going to put, uh, going to put up that wrestler hat on again for this Today's Training. We're going to go back and be a wrestler again. We're going to go back 100 years again. To Dutch Mantel, the original Dutch Mantel's time. And uh, I'm going to tell the, the last story I think I'm probably going to end up telling about this legendary shooter, uh, the original Dutch Mantel. We're going to quickly finish this one by going back to last week's July 23rd, 1976 Knoxville card. I did not, because we had so much stuff in the last studcast, didn't get to telling the results of that card and who won those matches that night. I had some fans bring that to my attention. So we're going to start there that day, and uh, we're going to discuss the great TV of Saturday, July 24th. The one that's going to promote the next event that we're talking about will be uh, Friday night, July 30th, 1976. And from that TV, we're going to discuss my championship match with Tanaka for the TV title that's in this program today. We're going to discuss the announcement of the upcoming NWA World Championship Terry Funk title defense that's set for October 10th, 1976. And we're going to talk about a lot more from that TV. Uh, We're going to talk then about the great card, uh, July 30th, 1976, to talk about what happened that night and the attendance. And we're going to finish today with another great learning to a question that came 
last week because of that segment we did in today's training last week. And we talked about uh, Roy and Dutch making that trip from Amarillo to Houston and what happened in that shoot for the city of Houston. And we had uh, this question came from a lady. And she asked, uh, surely Dutch Mantell could not have been as nasty a person as you described in the last stud cast or as ugly as his photo would indicate. (laughs) (laughs) And then she went on to say, what kind of person was he? Not only in the ring, but in real life. So I got to thinking once I I read this question, I went, wow, you know, I kind of think he's a pretty nasty person, too. Maybe I ought to find out. So. At the end of the show today, we're going to find out what the real Dutch Mantell was all about. Well, it sounds like there is definitely another big stud cast ready to roll. All right, Ron, let's get right to it. Okay, uh, so, uh, and that's what I want. I want these uh, stud casts all to be big. Uh, Southeastern wrestling during this time frame in 1976, the summer of 76, is just exploding. I mean, business is just increasing uh, every week, and uh it's a good time frame for for the stud cast, and they're just going to get better from here on. Uh, everything is just going to start popping from here on. I absolutely agree, Ron. But before we get to 1976, are we going to begin back in the early 1900s with Dutch Mantel and another great story in today's training? That's it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back at 100 years again. And I have another story, and this probably is going to be the last story I'm going to tell about the old-timer Dutch Mantell. And uh, and this one was told to me again by my grandfather, and uh, and he uh, he always uh, expressed to me how dangerous the old Dutchman was. And uh, and uh, this one is going to tell the fans out there uh, how Dutch made money when professional wrestling matches couldn't be found, when it was mm-hmm. difficult for him to find money and to make money. So this story, I think, probably took place somewhere between 1916 and 1918, and it was in Texas, probably in the panhandle of Texas, and he might have gone over into New Mexico for some of these towns that he's going to visit when this goes down. And uh, Dutch, he'd ride his horse. Now, this is before he had the big money. This is how he made the big money, as a matter of fact. And uh, he had to ride his horse into these towns outside of Amarillo, and uh, in the small towns, he go in late in the day, early part of the night, into the old saloons. And obviously, they'd be full of old cowboys. Everybody's hanging out in there and having a drink and enjoying themselves. And he would go in and, and start to do what he must have been really good at. In fact, uh, that's how he started making his name as a wrestler once he really got into it. But he was only, he was less than 150 pounds soaking wet. Uh, you got to imagine, and he's not a tall guy. He was shorter than my grandfather, who was 5'8". So he was probably about 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, and maybe 140 pounds. Uh, just a small guy. And he would go into these bars, and he would start being a loudmouth as soon as he got in the door. He would start <laughs> yelling, and, hey, how y'all doing? I mean, get everybody's attention in the bar. <laughs> and uh, then he would start out uh, with, like, Hey, I, I'm a hell of a racer. I'm a fast guy. He goes, anybody in this town really fast? He goes, I got some money in my pocket, and I want to make a bet. I'll bet anybody in this town that I can beat anybody you got here. Uh, we'll go out there in the road in front of the bar here. We'll mark off a, <laughs> a race course of about 100 yards, 150 yards, and he says, I'll cover every bet. You know, anybody got any money? Come on. I'm, I want to leave here with some bread. So, you know, he would be so loudmouthed and so confident, they they would be hesitant. And he wouldn't get many bets, but, you know, they'd get enough bets that he'd get enough interest. And he'd go out in the road with whoever that got chosen in the saloon at that point. And he would, they would have a race. He'd send the guy down the, down the road there. And there was usually dirt roads in the towns back in those days in that part of the country. And he would send the guy 100 yards or so down the road, and he was going to be the Finnish guy. And uh, somebody would say go, and him and the guy would take off running, and the guy would beat him by 30 yards or something. He was like slow, right? And everybody would go, oh, they got a big laugh, and he'd have to come back, and he's all mad now. And uh, he would say, uh, 
I can't, you know, he'd pay off the bets first. And everybody got their money and everybody's happy. And then he'd just continue on being the obnoxious jerk he was. And he would start then saying, oh, I, I'm, I'm strong. I'm really strong. I should have done this to start with. I, I want to arm wrestle now. You got anybody here that's strong? And at this point, now he's beginning to suck these people in, you know, and they're like, wow, this guy, he don't, he can't be strong. He can't run, you know, and look at him. He can't be strong. So he said that he told my Roy, he said the saloon would half empty. They'd all run out. They'd go find their buddies and they'd go, geez, you got to get down here to the saloon. They got this idiot down here. He's got a lot of money and he's making these crazy bets. So he'd wait. He'd have a few drinks and he'd get drunker and he, you know, he wasn't getting drunk, but they would think he's getting drunk and he's, and now he's getting louder and louder. And then finally he lets the saloon fill up more than what it was when he first went in there. And then he covers all the bets. <laughs> and this time, you know, there's a lot of people. Now the saloon is, is getting pretty darn full, man. It's, so he, they set him up a table in the middle of the saloon. They push the tables back, and it's just him and the big tough guy, big old guy with big arms, obviously, and strong as hell. And he grabs his hand, and they're ready. Somebody says go, and the guy slams his arm down like he's going to break it. You know, And everybody's, oh, the whole bar, hey, hot dog, we're going to get the money, man, pay us off. And he go pay in the mouth. Now he's, now he's, yep. He's, he's really getting them hooked in at this point. Mm-hmm. He gets a paying them off. And then he says, he starts screaming now, I want to wrestle. I'm tough. And I, and I can beat anybody <laughs> wrestling. Well, you know, they've seen him now. He can't run and he's not strong. He can't beat the arm wrestler. And now he's wanting to really wrestle. And then uh, he told Roy, he says, the, the saloon would empty. He said, everybody would go. They'd all go to get their all their friends, all their buddies. He said, God, then when he'd wait 30 minutes, and he said, the saloon would be packed, and they would be standing outside trying to get in. And then he would say, and now I want to double the bets. <laughs> and so, oh, man, they're dying. everybody's just digging for every penny they got, man, and they throwing them out. Here you go. I'm betting this. I'm betting that. I'm betting this. And he just covered all the bets. And then they go out into the road there, and then the old dirt road, and and then somebody says, yeah, they and they find their biggest, strongest guy. And everybody, they they take a little extra time. He said sometimes to find the biggest, strongest wrestler type guy that they could find, and they would bring him. And boy, then everybody, they, they all of the money in town was up. And, uh, and then they would go out there in the road and somebody would say, go and Dutch, take the guy down and just, oh, have him screaming in 30 seconds. I give, oh, I give, I give. Uh, and then he'd get up and collect all the bread, uh, fill his pockets, uh, throw his saddlebags full of money, and then he'd get on his horse and he would ride down the road. And maybe he didn't go but 15, 20 miles or wherever the next town was because people weren't, had no telephones. and. Had no way to communicate, and they didn't know about him. And uh, you know, he just he traveled on westward into New Mexico, and he'd stop the next day in another town, and he'd do the same deal. That's how Dutch Mantell became a multi. Actually, we're going to talk later in the show. He became a multimillionaire. He he really had a tremendous amount of money, and that's what he did when he couldn't find matches. Uh, he would go out, and that's how he made his money. That's how he became a rich man. So that, that's, it, I guess you call that the confidence game. He certainly built that up. That's another great one, Ron. So you're making Dutch Mantel a star again, even a hundred years later. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd have met this guy. I'll be honest with you, man. Uh, he was he was quite a character and. As the show goes on, at the end of the day, instead of our normal type of learning tree, we're going to find out. A lot more about Dutch, and I think people are going to be really, really surprised at uh, what Dutch was really all about. That's pretty cool. All right, where where are we off to next, Ron? Okay, we're going to finish that uh, July 23rd card that we did not finish last week. We're going to give people the results. Uh, The opening match of that card was George McCrary, who had had been gone from Southeastern since June of 1975. 
He's returning. He's a much improved wrestler. He's wrestling Bill Dundee in the first match, and George McCrary wins his first Southeastern match after he returns. Tommy Rich and Norville Austin, they're in the second match, and that, that was a fantastic 20-minute draw. Uh, both those guys could really go, and Tommy's getting so good at this point. Third match featured a continuing feud, obviously, between Ron Wright and Louis Tillette. It's still going on. Uh, to let Ren in this match from Ron Wright the entire match. I mean, out of the ring, trying to go to the dressing room and just about to get counted out and finally ends up getting counted out. So the following Friday night, they're going to return in a match called the bouncer match, which Ron Wright wanted to do. He wanted to have a bouncer match and he wanted to have uh, four guys outside the ring and uh, have those guys uh, one on each side of the ring, and whenever a guy tried to get out to run, they were going to grab him and throw him back in. Tillette didn't like the idea, but that was scheduled for the following Friday night, which was going to be July 30th. Bob Armstrong and the great Mephisto are battling that night uh, in the fourth match of the card, and uh, both men got disqualified, and the ref got thrown all over the ring. It was a pretty, pretty wild affair, actually. It didn't have a whole lot of wrestling in it because Mephisto just wasn't a wrestler. He was. He was a scrapper, and uh, they're going to return the following week on July 30th in a special challenge match. The fourth match of the night was Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings in the Southeastern Tag Championship match with the champions, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger. Uh, This match ended in the disqualification of the Von Steigers, and uh, Golden and Stallings made a pretty darn good team. It looked like that there was going to be some potential for having an angle between them, but things are going to change here in this particular night. Main event of the night was a loser leave town. The Southeastern loser leave the Southeastern whole entire area between Don Carson and Robert Fuller, my brother. And uh, Robert took most of the match, but then Carson found that opportunity to load the black glove uh, in the, in, during the match, and, uh, and he nailed Rob with it, and he beat him right in the middle. Uh, the crowd was kind of shocked. Uh, there was quiet, and really quiet when it ended. And Carson left the ring, went to the dressing room, and the crowd would, you know, once he got out of the ring and he started his strutting in his mouth, the crowd really got to booing him as they always did. And that, that just made him do it more because he loved it and he milked it like a great heel would always do. Uh, he really, really had the crowd hating him. More than ever by the time he got to the dressing room. Yeah. So I went down to the ring. You know, Rob was still down. I consoled him. And uh, he was still selling from the punch he got from the glove. And, uh, and, the, and it was the end of his run in Southeastern at that point. You know, And he'd been in Knoxville since Halloween night in 1975. So he'd been there for about eight, nine months. He got a standing ovation once I got him up on his feet. He got a stand ovation from the crowd, and we hugged each other in the ring, and and, uh, and then we left. And and on the way to the dressing room, I saw a few tears and some eyes. You know, uh, fans really liked him. Uh, they they were really upset that he had lost, and he felt bad about having to leave to him himself. So he's going to return in five months, and when he comes back five months from this date, the talent and the entire territory will have changed completely. I mean. Things are just really about to explode for Southeastern at this point. The last main event of that night was a Southeastern Championship match with me and Tanaka. It was my first match back since that June 4th Southeastern slaughter where Tanaka had dislocated my shoulder. The fans were ready for this one, uh, especially after Rob losing. And, and we're all going to watch this one and talk about this one together uh, the next day on TV. And that's where we're going to go right now. We're just going to go into the TV. So we'll talk about that TV on Saturday, June 24th, 1976. It opened up with another one of those beautiful shots on the Chromis Key side of the Southeastern set from the night before. It was the match with me and Tanaka. Uh, there's a shot in there. And it was a still shot again across the big set behind Les of the end of this match. My Jimmy Golden and I had joined Les. So uh, what's on the screen behind us is a big shot of me. I had been really taking it to Tanaka at this point. I threw him in the ropes, and I was squared off to hit him with a big punch. And that picture was right there. It was held in a, in a screenshot. And the video uh, 
it just sat there. And uh, then the cameras panned in tight, beginning of the show. And Les wants to run down what's going to be on the program today. The camera goes into a tight shot of Les. And he began to run down the card for that day on TV. The Southeastern Tag Championship match that day on television. I was going to be wrestling against Tanaka for his television trophy. So that match he plugged, he plugged uh, Don Carson. that had won over Robert Fuller in the Loser Leaf Southeastern match. They were going to show the video of that. They were going to show a video of Bob Armstrong and the great Mephisto from the night before. And there was going to be a special personality profile that was going to talk about the upcoming NWA title match with the new champion, Terry Funk, plus three other live matches. Tremendous TV. Great TV. Uh, it was um, spectacular TV. Uh, you know, I doubt any true wrestling fan that had tuned in to watch uh, the matches turn the channel. And even those that might have had to had turned the channel to find out what else was on and came to wrestling. If they watched a little bit of this, we were going to hook them. That was what was happening back in those days. Fans were really into those wrestling shows. Yeah. And well, you know, once they started watching and they watched two segments of that, they're going to watch the whole show. What was happening is we were loading these shows, and uh, it was becoming the standard for Southeastern Wrestling. It was the primary reason that come next three weeks later when that TV rating books came out, finally, that every TV manager and every television station in Knoxville was going to be in for a shock when they looked at 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoons because we were really, really gaining a lot of steam. So let's roll the video. He had explained who's on the show. He rolled the video, and Jimmy and I joined him in the conversation about it. Uh, when the video started rolling, Tlaka came flying off the ropes, and I hit him right in the mouth with a big punch, and the crowd exploded in the, in the amphitheater. We're outside that night. Tanaka went down hard, and then all of a sudden, Norville Austin, had to say, as he had been doing for the last few weeks, he started coming down to the ring to try to get involved. And I covered Tanaka, but I saw Austin hit the apron, and I got up off of Tanaka before the ref counted him out. And I grabbed Austin, and I ran him straight down the apron and, and ran his big old, <laughs> big old hard head into the steel ring post. And uh, that was the end of Austin for a while. He went off into the floor, and uh, the crowd exploded again. Tanaka got up fast enough, though, that he stopped me from behind, and he drove me back into the turnbuckles where Homer was, standing down there in the corner. And I continued to pound Tanaka, but I was only able to hit him in the back. He had bent over where I couldn't get to his head. And uh, then he turned his body around and he grabbed the referee and he started pushing the referee away from the corner. Kind of left me in the corner there. And I, I was thinking, what in the heck is going on? And about that time, Homer Odell had sneaked up on the apron behind me. Referee was dealing with Tanaka and he hit me with his steel helmet and and I knew what was going on at that point. So I went down hard, too. And uh, Golden, Jimmy Golden, thank gosh, old Jimmy's, you know, and he's already upset by what's happened to Rob, too. So he comes down to the ring, and he climbs up on the top rope on the corner that's behind Tanaka's back. Tanaka comes and grabs me once I take that bump, and uh, Homer's blasted me. Uh, Tanaka drags me to the middle of the ring, and he just stands over me. And the camera, the video, gets a real good shot of him just smiling at Homer. And Homer, is, <laughs> it shows Homer pointing, like, behind him. He, Homer's screaming at him and pointing, and uh, Tanaka can't figure out what's he talking about. And when Tanaka turns around, Jimmy's standing up there. Jimmy just flew off that top rope. My gosh. He hit Tanaka square in the face with both his feet. And Tanaka went flying from the middle of the ring through the ropes and landed on top of Homer out there on the concrete. Then the fans, they really loved that one too, obviously. But uh, the only problem for me about this was the referee standing right there watching it. So as soon as he saw Jimmy come flying off the top rope, and <laughs> he just rang the bell. Well, that's it. It's over. He disqualified me. I lost. Uh, and the fans didn't care. You know, because they, they watched that Tanaka take a 300-pound body flying through the air and, and then uh, creaming out Homer on the concrete out there. They got to see what they wanted to see. Now, Austin comes around. He helps them up. And ref goes out and raises Tanaka's hand. And, and they get out of there. 
But this match ending, it's, it's going to become a crucial part of the following Friday's tremendous card of July 30th, 76. It's going to be Golden's first shot at the Southeastern heavyweight title of Tor Tanaka's. And uh, Jimmy left the set at this point. We'd already watched the video. He went straight to the ring and he got himself a big win. Homer and Tanaka took that first interview. Made sense. They're involved in this match with Golden. They've just seen the match on the video. And Homer made it plain that I wasn't going to get any more Southeastern Championship matches because I'm getting a TV match today. I got a Southeastern Championship match the night before. Now I've got a chance at his Tanaka's TV trophy. And that's it for me. And then they jumped on Jimmy because of that sneaky drop kick, they called him. You know, Jimmy Golden's sneaky drop kick behind the guy's back, you know. And they made all kinds of threats, uh, and even Tanaka, about what they were going to do to Golden. But you couldn't tell what Tanaka was saying. I don't know, and nobody else could tell what language he's speaking, <laughs> you know. I mean, he just, <laughs> just like, wow, what the heck? What's he saying? You know, uh, so Homer ended up the interview by saying Tanaka was going to do a blockbuster exhibition the following Saturday, live on TV. He's going to show what's going to happen to Golden. And, and to make make our point, we're going to bring a bunch of concrete blocks and Tanaka is going to break them in front of it right here on television next week. That was a good setup for next week's TV. Next segment, Oakland with a video of Don Carson's win over Robert the night before in the loser leaves Southeastern match. Carson joined Les at the set, and Carson was really full of himself as usual, bragging about one Fuller's down and then one to go. (laughs) So Rob's gone, and now I'm next, right? So he he denied using his back glove because, you know, they watched the video, and gosh, it was pretty plain that he, when the referee's back was turned, he loaded his glove, and then Les brought it to his attention when it was happening in the video. And Carson had a great excuse, as usual. His excuse this time was that his right arm had shrunk from the horrible accident that he'd had to it and the fact that he couldn't work out with it like he did the other arm. And he said his black protective glove was almost too big now for his arm because his arm has (laughs) gotten smaller. It has shrunk. And uh, sometimes the glove almost fell off his arm now, and he was reaching down there to pull the glove back up on his arm to protect it. And (laughs) the fans, they did the the fans' opinion, they didn't have a very good opinion of that. You know, they booed him as always. So so Les, you know, puts one on him here that he's not expecting. And Les says, well, do you mind, Don? You're right here, and you got your glove and everything. Can can I just inspect your glove? (laughs) Don says, no, 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 of course not. You know, and uh, all the fans went nuts. They were like, yeah, yeah, good. let him do it. You know, and so Carson had it. He was scheduled to wrestle anyway in the next match. So he just he got up and left the set and said, hey, will you shut up, Thatcher? And he went to the ring and he got himself. So I took the interview slot after his match. And uh, I talked about how difficult it was in the hours after Roberts lost the night before for us to deal with it, you know, the fact that he's, he's gone and, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, and the Jimmy's there and the family's there and it, it, it was tough. And I told the fans that Rob wanted me to explain how much he had enjoyed wrestling for the great fans in Southeastern and that he'd be back someday. And, uh, then I tore into Don Carson and what a low life he was. Uh, I thank the Southeastern officials for giving me a most unusual lights out match with Carson the following Friday night. Uh, he'd beat Rob and, uh, now he's screaming, he's going to get me. So, uh, you know, I just went and said, you know, let's, let's, let's make this a, a lights out match. So Les and I explained to the fans what a lights out match was. There had only been one in Southeastern. We explained there was a non-sanctioned match by the national wrestling Alliance that after all the other matches were concluded, and uh, both the opponents had arrived in the ring uh, and the announcements been made. The lights would be extinguished in the arena for 10 seconds and then turned back on. And that signified that the NWA didn't want anything to do with this match. They weren't sanctioned it at all. And basically, after those lights come back on, you could do anything you wanted to. <laughs> I mean, it was like there's no rules. There, there's no rules. And, and so... Uh, I pointed out that the last NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match in Southeastern was on the Sunday afternoon of January 18, 1976, 
because I went back and looked. It was Don Carson against my brother. That was the last non-sanctioned NWA match that Southeastern had had. And it was also one of the bloodiest matches in Southeastern history that day between Rob and Carson. I promised the fans that they'd never seen Carson get his ass beat like it was going to get beat the following Friday night. (laughs) And they were all happy to hear that, obviously. Personality profile was next. It was just less this time. For one of the rare times, he was alone for this personality profile. It was kind of a solemn event. Uh, The announcement of the first NWA world title match in Southeastern since November 22nd of 1975. On that date, uh, world champion Jack Briscoe had defended his title successfully against Ron Wright. Les explained that the new NWA champion was Terry Funk. He gave the date for the match of October 10th, 1976. He told them it was going to be held in the Knoxville Civic Coliseum. Then he read a letter from the NWA president, Sam Muchnick. Sam congratulated Southeastern Wrestling in the letter for their success as the newest member of the National Wrestling Alliance and one of the fastest growing areas for wrestling in the world. It was a very nice letter, uh, really put Southeastern over. Les finished what was a short personality profile by announcing that at this time, the officials of Southeastern were still to make the decision as to who was going to get the title shot. And he said it would be announced as soon as the challenger was chosen. He finished uh, stating that no matter who got that shot, they would be facing one of the best NWA champions ever. And that was no lie. Terry Funk was certainly that. So next segment, Bob Armstrong and the great Mephisto. They were highlighted in it. And uh, we had a video of that match. And it's shown uh, uh, Bob was at the set with Les and he discussed what was seen in the video, which was just a wild encounter. And the referee just got bounced all around. It was it was a pretty wild affair. And uh, so then the great Mephisto had a live match following the video. And he tortured, man, this young baby face, as, as he'd been doing on every one of his matches. He just really hurt the kid and made it look like he enjoyed it. Mephisto took the next interview. Uh, after Bob had been there and watched the video, Mephisto, after his match, went straight to do the interview. And I always like to do that. I like to have a wrestler uh, that's going to do the interview do the match right before it because it always had fired him up. He made a better interview. So he made a very serious interview, though, Mephisto. But it was seldom understandable uh, what the heck he was talking about. But he kept referring to the fire to come and taming the infidels of America. He said something about loving the smell of burning flesh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the studio fans, uh, like me upstairs, didn't know really how to react to what they were hearing. But uh, six days later, on the night of uh, July 30th, we're all going to know what he's talking about. TV championship match was last. It ended with another sneaky drop kick by old Jimmy on Tora Tanaka. Just like it happened the night before, except this time, I did what Tanaka did in the match before, the night before. I drew the referee on purpose away so that he couldn't see it. And Jimmy drop kicked Tanaka again. And this time the referee didn't see it. I covered Tanaka. The referee counted him out. (laughs) So so, uh, we finally got it done. And that studio went absolutely wild, man. (laughs) I was like, now Tanaka had lost his television trophy to me. It was a good way. Jimmy and I closed the show. I talked about how good it was going to be the next Friday night to get revenge for my brother. And uh, Jimmy said, imagine how Tanaka and the Homer is going to feel. Because when I win the championship from Tanaka, he will have lost two championships in six days. <laughs> two in six days. Two in right, six well, days. <laughs> that's a great place for a break. Let's take one and we'll be back. This studcast will continue in moments right here. Super Studcast are as different as the wrestlers, promoters, or events they describe. Super Studcast number 31 has become a fan favorite about a very unusual part of wrestling, the referees. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast, this three-hour deep dive into the man in the stripes comes with the actual stories from some of the best referees ever. You may never have appreciated the third man in the ring, but after hearing this Super Studcast, you'll never feel the same about it. 
about them, their fears, the riots, their unbelievable commitment to the sport. Part one has two of them. Nick Patrick, son of Jody Hamilton of Assassin fame and Bill Alfonso that started as just a fan and worked his way to the top. You should not miss this one at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. It's the best deal in wrestling. Welcome back to another Studcast. It's David Summers with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And remember, Studcast fans, you can go all the way back to the very first episode 157 weeks ago at tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. All the episodes are there. All right, we are saddled up, and where are we headed to now, Ron? Well, we're going to get the results of that Friday, July 30th card that I talked about with this last television before we took the break. And uh, the opening match on that night was George McCray against Norvell Austin. And McCray won that match. Second match is uh, Mike Stallings and a newcomer called the Gladiator wrestling against the Von Steigers. Uh, that was a 20-minute draw. But this new gladiator was really outstanding. We'll be talking a lot about him next week. Uh, Going to find out a lot more about the gladiator. The third match of the night was that bouncer match. We talked about Ron Wright and Louis Tillette. There were four matches, four wrestlers stationed around the ring for this one. They Wright or Tillette uh, ran from the ring. The four guys are going to grab them up and shoot them back into the ring. Well, Ron Wright won the match, and, and he won it in a very strange way. Louis Tillette, finally toward the end of the match, was running, and Bob Armstrong grabbed him up by himself. He threw Louis Tillette from the floor of the building over the top rope into the ring on his head, and about half knocked him out. Ron Wright just covered him and counted him out. So Bob Armstrong basically beat Louis Tillette right in the middle of the ring by never getting in the ring, by throwing him outside the ring over the top rope into the ring. So next match was Bob Armstrong against the great Mephisto. And this match is going to be a shock for everybody in the building. And I say building because this card took place on the indoors arena because we had a huge storm that night, and it just kept raging. Normally, these thunderstorms would come about 6 o'clock, and by 7 o'clock, they'd start dying down, and uh, we would stay outside. But on this particular night, we were forced to go on the inside building. And what happened in this match was pretty close to what was happening in some of the outside of the building, the lightning. It was like lightning on the inside in this match. Mephisto's references on the TV six days earlier to smell and skin burn came to pass in this match. Uh, after the ring introductions, Armstrong still had his jacket on, and he turned to go back to his corner. We videoed it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mephisto was still robed, and when Bob turned his back and headed to the corner, Mephisto followed him, uh, got pretty close to him, and then stopped and kind of turned his back to Bob. Bob was taking off his wrestling jacket, and when he turned around, the bell hadn't even rung for the match or anything to begin the match. When the bell rung, Bob turned around, and Mephisto hurled a huge ball of fire, probably three feet wide, that totally enveloped Armstrong's entire head. I mean, you couldn't see his head. His head was in the fire. Yeah. And I don't know if fans in that part of the country had ever seen this anything like this before. And there was a remarkable gasp from the crowd. And then total silence. It was like, uh, it was the first time in Southeastern history that any wrestler had thrown fire. It had never happened before since I'd been there. Bob went instantly to the mat, grabbed his face. He started rolling uncontrollably around the ring. I mean, uh, I've had that happen to me. It's going to happen to me too. And it was horrible. It was a horrible thing. You can't imagine it, the pain. And uh, so he's rolling around the ring, and a referee grabs Bob's wrestling jacket, and he covered Bob's head with it. Mephisto stood in the middle of the ring, and he was laughing as Bob just flopped around, kind of like a fish out of water. And Jimmy and I ran down to the ring and got Bob, uh, threw a towel over his head, and uh, we took him back to the dressing room. Soon the crowd, the crowd was just totally silent, and... Uh, but uh, soon they began to realize what they had seen, and a great roar of boos kind of started. It like grew slowly, and it just got louder and louder. 
And Mephisto never left the ring. Some fans uh, went toward the ring because Mephisto had knelt down and he threw both his hands in the air. He was looking skyward and giving praise to Allah. It's <laughs> like, oh, man, you know, and the, the Armstrong was really, really over at this point. And they wanted to kill him. The fans wanted to get him right then. In fact, the police were upstairs and they all came down. They had to rush down to the ring to stop people from going after him, going in the ring. So heels came out of the dressing room. (laughs) They went, they saw what was going on and they went down to the ring. And uh, they got Mephisto and the cops surrounded him and uh, the building was in turmoil. I mean, they were really, really mad. And uh, so they got him back to the dressing room. And then we took a long intermission. We tried to allow the fans to calm down. An ambulance came to the building to take Bob to, to the hospital to see see how bad his injuries were. And uh, we escorted him with still with a towel covering his head to the ambulance. And, and that was a groundbreaking event in southeastern history. I mean, what happened right there really, really had a huge effect on, on what was going to happen business-wise for southeastern in the next few weeks. Uh, Jimmy Golden and Tanaka were next. For Tanaka's Southeastern Championship belt, Jimmy shot at the belt. Jimmy came into that ring after that had gone down with Bob, and he never let up on on, uh, Tanaka. He really went after Tanaka. It was amazing, man. And uh, everybody in that building was really on fire. And and, uh, Jimmy was on his way to victory. I think he was going to beat Tanaka in less than five minutes. And... uh, and Homer got involved. Homer got Tanaka disqualified. And I think it was because he really felt that Jimmy was going to take Tanaka's belt. <laughs> what we had talked about six days earlier, Tanaka losing two titles in six days was going to come to pass. So after another short intermission, then Carson and I went to the ring. This is the, for the uh, non-sanctioned lights out match. I had my fist taped. I was going in to take care of, of Carson for what he had done to my brother. And uh, the match was announced. Then the lights were extinguished in the entire arena for about 10 seconds to signify that the NWA wanted no part of this one. And when they came back on, it was like a totally different arena than it had been when the announcements were going on. After the lights were dimmed and then the lights came back on, the roof came off the building. It was like the crowd really said, geez, it's time. Let's do it. You know, and they started stomping, man. And the bleachers, the fans started stomping the bleachers and stomping the floor. And they were screaming, stud, 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 as loud as they could. I got these big old goosebumps all over my body. I don't even remember when they rang the bell. <laughs> I mean, Maybe they didn't ring the bell. I might have just charged him, though. And we had a brawl. I mean, the referee uh, that started the match, he only lasted a few minutes before he got knocked out. Carson hit him, and uh, and he got knocked out, carried out. The second referee came down uh, after a couple of minutes of me and Carson just going at it, and he got it, too, and they end up carrying him out of the ring, too. Carson finally, after we were both bloody messes, he finally left the ring. There was never a winner proclaimed in this match because there wasn't a referee at the end of the match. There had been two referees there, and they didn't none of them make it. So wow. it was one of the bloodiest matches in Southeastern history. Both Carson and I got stitches afterward. Uh, and and uh, Bob Armstrong uh, had gone to the hospital um, with, his, with his head on fire. I mean, it, it was really a, a, a crazy night for wrestling fans. No doubt. What a night. How big was this crowd since it was inside compared to the outdoor amphitheater crowds? Well, the building was always set up for the entire summer to hold about 3,000 people in case we needed to move inside. And that's probably all that should have been in there was about 3,000. But we didn't decide to make the move indoors until about 7 o'clock when it became apparent this storm is just not going to end. So there was no fire marshal there because the fire marshal figured that we're going to be outside in the amphitheater. Right. So, you know, obviously they sold tickets way over what the capacity of the building was. It was more than 4,000 people in the building that was set up for 3,000. 
So, I mean, it was just totally crammed. Some people couldn't probably see. They were so far back, they couldn't even see any of it. They were just a part of it. Maybe another 2,000 people that night got turned away and couldn't even get in the building. Wow. So, so it was going to be the last rain out of the summer. Thank goodness for that. Because we're going to sit in the next three matches in, in 1976 in August. We're going to set all-time records for Chihuahua Park attendance. We're going to really, really cram that, that whole facility. Just that amphitheater is not big enough. Man, that is absolutely legendary. All right, Ryan, I think it's time for us to get that cold drink. We will take a seat under the learning tree. What are the questions, once again, that you're answering today? Well, uh, we're we're going to answer the the uh, Dutch Mantel ladies. Uh, our question came from a lady named uh, Dottie Pearson, and uh, she asked, "Surely Dutch Mantel could not have been as nasty a person as you described in last week's today's training, or as ugly as his photo? What kind of person was he? Not only in the ring, but in real life." I'm kind of glad that I got this letter from her, and I got this message because. I had so many other people who were just mystified by the Dutch Mantel story. So let's start uh, answering this by getting that ugly photo out of the way that she mentioned on the way. Miss Pearson, uh, I didn't doctor up that photo. <laughs> I'm serious. And some people said that that was the ugliest guy they think that they'd ever seen. Right. You know, I didn't doctor up that photo that I used in last week's stud cast. And I put a photo on each one of these stud casts. And I've got one this week that's going to be pretty amazing, too. Uh, but I didn't doctor that one up. No, ma'am. I got it from Google. And, uh, and I'll admit that Dutch Mantel was not a handsome man. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I hope, uh, Miss Dotson, you, you're going to check out the picture this coming week because it's another one of Dutch. But this time, it's going to be totally different. I think it's going to freak you out, man. <laughs> you know, this next one, he's dressed in a tuxedo, of all things. And uh, right. so that's going to be my photo for this stud cast number 157. So uh, let's have a look at the complete history of the original Dutch Mantel. Dutch Mantel's name was, and, I, and, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this. I see why the, that they wanted to change his name. His name was Alfred Albert Joe De La Gardiver. He was born on July 25th, 1881 in Dykirk, Luxembourg. And as a boy, he dreamed of going to America. And I guess this is a lot of people around the world, and it's a tribute to our country. But I can imagine as a young kid, you know, he lives over there in Europe and he hears about America. So in 1895, now he's just 14 years old, he leaves home and he makes his way over to England and he stows away on a merchant ship that he thought was bound for America. You know? <laughs> you can imagine a 14-year-old kid and he goes over there and, he's, and he can't buy a ticket to get to America. So he sees that there's a big ship there and it's going somewhere. And he, so he gets on the ship. Well, the ship ends up four months later in Fremantle, Australia. <laughs> wow. So Dutch don't get on the right ship because he ends up in Australia. Well, he's obviously this tough kid. And uh, so prize fighting is real popular in Australia uh, back in the early 1900s. And he becomes a prize fighter. He, he does a boxing and this. He gets under the tutelage of a wrestler there named Dan McLeod, who's a big time veteran, a big name in Australia at this point. So later he, and he just boxes quite a bit. He doesn't do much wrestling, but the guy's teaching him to wrestle and shoot as well. But he's a boxer at this point, and he he's fighting pretty regularly. And there's a Shakespearean actor named Robert B. Mantell who becomes a second for him. Who is just and he's a fairly wealthy guy. He's an actor in these Shakespearean plays in Australia, and he takes a liking to Dutch. He sees that he's got a lot of heart, and the guy's last name is Mantell. So because of Dutch's heavy accent, which you know I I, I did a little bit of last week. Uh, and his name, which is almost impossible to pronounce, Dutch becomes known as Mantel's boy because this guy seconds him in so many fights, and Dutch is obviously winning all these fights. And then after a while, Dutch becomes so fond of him, he 
he names himself Dutch. So he becomes Dutch Mantell. That's how Dutch becomes Dutch Mantell. He still wanted to come to America, though. He never lost that dream, and uh, his dream came true for him in 1900 because he stepped off the ship. He finally got on the right ship, and he made it to New York City in 1900. In the next two years, he crossed the country in wrestling bouts, from one side to the other. And then after that, he joined the United States Navy in 1902. He got discharged in 1906, but he had become an American citizen by then. So over the next six years, from 1906 to 1912, he traveled around the U.S. as a highly recognized lightweight wrestler. And I say that because he was darn good. And after he beat all of the 135-pounder weight limit guys in wrestling, uh, he began to take on all the weight divisions. You know, he, he, he went beyond the 135. He started taking on everybody. He started wrestling some guys that weighed over 200 pounds, and he weighed 135 pounds. Wow. The history books say he never lost. He <laughs> never got beat. I mean, he was just unbeatable. So he developed a reputation as a hell-raising villain as a kid. He, he must have had a wild style in the ring, and obviously he was really, really tough. So it's about this time that he first visited Amarillo. And he took an immediate liking to the what, what Amarillo is called, the Queen City of the Panhandle. He became infatuated with Amarillo. So from 1913 to 1915, he created another chapter in his life. He went to Hollywood, and he became a member of Max Sennett's Keystone Cops. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever seen those, Dave. You probably have. The, you know, yes. it's a famous comedy team in the yeah, silent the, movie the, day. Yeah. Yeah. So for two years, he's in Hollywood. He's a member of Max Sennett's Cops. It's like, wow, this guy doing that. He's ever he's doing it all. And he, so he returns to wrestling in 1915. Uh, and he beat huge stars in that year. Matty Matsuda. He beat Jack Reynolds, who was a huge name at that time. But he couldn't never retain any championship status because of his uncouth crowd exciting techniques. That's the way it was described in Google. That's the way they described it as, you know, uh, and uh, actually some of this stuff didn't even come from Google. I I'll tell you who gave me some <laughs> of this information in a minute. But anyway, he beats Matty Matsuda and Jack Reynolds in 1915. But he's still not won any championships because he's just crazy. He must be a crazy guy in the ring. So. <laughs> You know, he is a wrestler, uh, as all wrestlers at that time, he had lean times because matches were hard to come by. There weren't a lot of professional matches out there, and there wasn't a lot of places he's going to get paid. So he traveled some in the carnivals during those times, which we talked about that last episode, you know, about uh, two episodes ago, two stud casts ago, about Roy being sent to the carnivals, and that's because Dutch had a connection to the carnivals, and uh, he was wrestling with them in 1916. And he later worked his own gimmick, which I just talked about earlier in the show, where he was going around to the towns and challenging people and, uh, and, <laughs> and, and basically taking all the cash from the little towns that he was going to. Right. So in El Paso, Texas, 1921, Dutch met the legendary Cal Farley. He met him in a strange way. Cal Farley, I have mentioned on several stud casts, Cal Farley was one of the first big-time, uh, well-recognized, well-respected. He's the founder of the boys' ranches around America. Uh, had a stamp made for him. He was so popular. Dutch Mantell in El Paso in 1921 happens upon a match that's going to taking place between Kyle Farley and Matty Matsuda. And he jumps in the ring before the match starts, uninvited, and the fans are all the jeering and, 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 and throwing bottles at him and everything else and challenges the winner of the match. He says, whoever wins, I want him as soon as the match is over. And the fans are throwing bottles and everything, and they, I can just see that scene, you know, uh, even Farley and, and Matsuda are probably ducking their head and like, get out of here. Who is this? And it's crazy. It's a it's, it's crazy Dutch mantel in there. So even so, his annex kind of set a precedent for the theatrical showman wrestlers of the latter times. I mean, he, he was way ahead of his time. So when I think about this match and how the challenge was done, 
it almost makes me believe that this challenge was probably a work, you know, and, and it might have been one of the first works of that time, that far back in 1921. You know, it's just strange that uh, that would have happened by coincidence, but uh, maybe it did. So anyway, two years later, 1923, the now, they called him Flying Dutchman, took on Cal Farley, Amarillo's hero, in two no-holes-barred matches in Amarillo, Texas. My grandfather, Roy, was training during this time frame. He was not yet in Ohio. He had to have been there and witnessed those matches. You know, and he told me all these stories about Dutch, but he told me nothing about these two matches. You know, I wished he had taken the time to tell me what happened in these two matches. But I'm going to answer Miss Pearson's second question now. She asked what kind of person was he, was Dutch, uh, not only in the ring, but in real life. So this is where Roy, having been trained by somebody like Dutch and having protected the business like few guys before him or after him, he didn't tell me the whole Dutch man tell story. I think my grandfather only wanted me to know the tough part of wrestling. He never spoke to me what, what it was all really about. So therefore, I had the same perception as, uh, as Miss Pearson did, that Dutch uh, was just a hateful, nasty person, and he never did a good deed in his life. So in order for me to find out what the inside story uh, was on Dutch Mantell, I had to find a source. So. And I want to thank a great fan, uh, John Crow, who lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's done some several thoughtful things for me. He's a great guy. He turned me on to the true history of Dutch Mantell. He sent me a link to the THSA, the Texas State Historical Association. And in this link, I found the fact that Dutch Mantell, just finding Dutch Mantell in something like this, it gave me more respect for Dutch. It's like, you know, I never realized that he was popular enough and big time enough to be in history. And he's a part of the Texas State Historical Association. So any wrestler that can earn a place of honor in an association like that, he's got to be a special guy. So let's talk about the real Dutch. Now, obviously, he was mean in the ring, you know, and everybody knew that. But he was also known nationwide outside the ring as a soft touch. And I'm going to give you a quote from the Texas State Historical Association in their own words about the original Dutch Mantel. His honesty and concern for those less fortunate was practically unparalleled. With his trained animals, and we'll discuss that in a minute, he was a big hit with children, and the millions that he earned usually went to help needy families and homeless urchins. Wow. Although never affiliated with any church or denomination, he carried his Bible with him and read it almost daily for guidance. Interesting. Wow. That's amazing to me. Gosh almighty. So in 1925, Dutch made Amarillo his permanent home. He formed a bond with the great Cal Farley, and he helped promote Cal's one-stop does it tire business? And uh, <laughs> Cal had a lot of things going besides, uh, you know, Cal was really and really a smart guy. And Dutch was a tremendous friend of his. He even became the trademark for that business for Cal. Farley's Flying Dutchman was the, the, the logo of that business. And uh, for 15 years, Mantel was a regular on Cal Farley's radio show. Cal Farley had a radio show in Amarillo for 15 years, and he was also the featured performer in Farley's Flying Dutchman Circus. That uh, was an animal show that was referenced a minute ago about the, how the kids loved him. And all this is in the Texas State Historical Society. If anybody wants to look it up, the 1935 charity match an old-time star in the wrestling business uh, named Sailor Moran. I remember his name from my grandfather. Kicked out Dutch's front teeth in a charity match. Wow. Okay. Now, you know, you got to be pretty stupid to kick out Dutch's front teeth, I'm sure. You know, but uh, uh, I don't know what happened after that. But uh, Dutch, Dutch, it, it really, went, you know, back in those days, you didn't get very good teeth, I guess, when you lost your teeth. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't long after this that Dutch is going to die. But I never knew this until I read the Historical Association story, uh, especially about this Sailor Moran kicking his teeth out. 
But I do remember asking Roy one time, what's the worst beating he ever gave to anyone? And uh, he told me the guy's name was Sailor Moran. <laughs> and, then, and, that, and now, man, since I since I learned this fact, I, I can't help but wonder if he did that because of Dutch. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Roy felt like Dutch was great. He got him in the business and he gave him his start. And uh, he knew Sailor Moran was a no good son of a gun if he could do that to Dutch. And, and he got even for Dutch. Uh, so Dutch's liberal giving habits, I mean, he was he obviously gave away his, his money to anybody that needed it uh, and eventually caused his Amarillo friends to take over his finances. <laughs> they took over his money and they would dole it out to him to live on it to prevent him from giving it all away. Well, you said, he, you said he became a millionaire, and that's hard to believe even back that long ago. Yeah, yeah, crazy. You know, and I, and I, he had to make a lot of this and these, that, these trips to these little towns. He must have right, done that right. for two or three years. Imagine what kind of money you make doing that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they doled the money out to him to, to keep him from giving every bit of his money away. He was living like a pauper because, yeah. uh, you know, he'd given it all to everybody. And yeah. then he was stricken by cancer in the last year of his life, and he died on January 31st in 1941. In his will. He left his remaining finances to the Maverick Club in Amarillo and to Cal Farley's Boys Ranch. Those were two organizations he'd helped build and ardently supported. That is really, that's a fantastic story, Ron. And, and I, want, I want to mention this, if you don't mind, just really quickly. There were two Dutch Mantels, never related, but could you give us an idea of the modern day Dutch Mantel in a couple of words compared to who this legendary figure was? I love the modern-day Dutch Mantel. He's a tremendous friend of mine. Uh, in fact, he's, he sent me a commentary on the, on the other Dutch. Uh, he, he commented to, to me this week that he loved it. He loved the, the, the last episode I did on the original Dutch Mantel. The younger Dutch Mantel, the one that's got the beard and the, the hairy body and, uh, and the tremendous personality. Uh, God, I love this. I love the younger Dutch. He's got a great personality, and he's funny. And uh, we're really close friends. In fact, he's on one of my super stud casts. But did, so, did, did uh, you not tell me that your father gave him that name? Yes, yes. His name was Wayne Cowan, and he was looking for a name for himself. And dead because of Roy's relationship with the original <laughs> Dutch, says, yeah. Why don't you call yourself Dutch Mantel? And uh, Dutch tells that story. Uh, it's a great story in itself. But uh, yes, I love both Dutch Mantels now. I mean, I, I really didn't know what to think of the other one until I until I got this uh, historical information from Texas. And it's just uh, it's been a great thing. Uh, this thing that has happened between uh, me and the original Dutch Mantel because of my grandfather's relationship. and. Yeah. And I really, really have tremendous respect now for the original Dutch Mantel. Well, great story again today. I don't know how you do it week after week on Facebook to become friends with the stud. Simply like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page. You will instantly become friends with a legend. You can also join his new Facebook page, our brand new Facebook page, author Ron Fuller Welch. Simply like the page and get information on his new novel. It is called Brutus. At Twitter, find him at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 31, the unsung heroes of the ring referees is now available as well. Would you like to say a few words about this one, Stud? And I bet you would. Yeah, yeah, I would. I mean, you know, when I did this, when I thought, well, I don't know, man, how people are going to enjoy, whether they're going to enjoy this or not. But wow, it has just taken off. I mean, fans around the world are like, well, geez, they love it. And uh, we've only done two referees. We're going to do at least three more in the part two. And, uh, you know, I encourage you, if you, if you, if you want to find out uh, more about what made wrestling happen and a lot of the guys that really contributed the most weren't wrestlers, sometimes they were referees. And uh, mm -hmm. it's quite a super stud cast. It's really different. That's all I can That's say. Cool. That's awesome. Okay, so where are we headed next week? What's up next week? 
what we're going to be entering, obviously, August of 1976, where we're going to be setting all-time records, as I mentioned earlier, at Chihuahua Park, as far as Chihuahua Park's wrestling attendance is concerned. Uh, we're going to be putting on that owner's hat again in another today's training. But this time, we're going to begin the never-dreamed-of negotiations with the city of Knoxville to become the primary tenant in their largest building, the Knoxville Civic Coliseum. Wow. I mean, that's growth. I mean, we've gone from little Chilhowie Park. We're going to the biggest building in the city, and we're going to become a 52-week-a-year customer. Nobody will wrestle there. Nobody will contribute more in that building or draw near the people that we will from the Knoxville Coliseum. Yeah. And uh, that's certainly something that uh, nobody in the country two years earlier would have expected to happen. Uh, they would have said, there's no way that'll ever happen. So we're going to also begin another significant talent move, bringing in more stars. We're continuing to add more great people in this time, in this, at this time frame. And our next learning tree question is going to be about what I think about Ric Flair in the 1980s, dropping the world title for a few days and then regaining it in the same week. So uh, again, I want to welcome the tremendous number of new fans that are joining the Studcast each week. It's pretty amazing. Uh, we are one of the fastest growing wrestling podcasts on the planet right now. Thank you all very much and uh, welcome those that uh, this is maybe your first time to hear these. And uh, I want to thank everybody out there for listening, no matter what country you're in. And, and in these trying times, you know, please take care of yourselves and others as well. And uh, God bless us all. This is David Summers thanking all of our listeners and reminding you Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.